this is episode 59 of Alohomora for November 30th, 2013. everybody and welcome to episode 59 of Alohomora. I am Eric Skull. And I'm Kat Miller. Um, no third guest or host this week, but we can handle it, right, Eric? Well, you know, we've compensated by having two special guests this week. Two amazing guests, actually, um, from the podcast What Are You Doing? movie, uh, Teague Christie and Michael Scott. So, hey, guys, thanks for joining us. Hello. Hi, thank Glad to be here. I'm Teague. That one's Michael. Yeah, sorry. That's <laughs> okay. So, um, big Potter fans, yes. Michael sure, certainly is. I was. A, I'm a fan of a bunch of YA fair, and Potter was the first among them that I really got into. Uh, but not as much as Mike. I, I think his fandom ended up going deeper than mine did. Uh, hmm. I I would say so. I would say uh, in terms of all the YA stuff I've read, I. I would say that I've continued uh, trying to read stuff um, in, in the in the kind of YA area because of Potter, because I loved Harry Potter so much, and I early on had dismissed it as I think many older, you know, uh, uh, pe- people older than Harry probably initially did um, as as kind of a, a kids thing until I was finally you know held down and forced to read it, uh, and so because of that now. Every time something gets really big in in the YA uh, area, I I think okay, I dismissed Harry Potter and I regretted that later. I regretted that I hadn't read that immediately, so I tend to um, pursue those other things. Nothing has come close. I was going to say uh, which brought you to Twilight. Yeah, so I've read Twilight. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've read The Hunger Games. Um, I don't blame Harry, Uh, but uh, that's good. Yeah, um, but yeah, uh, definitely a big fan. He's all trying to be casual about it. What you get, what, right. what, the, what the listeners don't know, just radio theater here, is that he's dressed like Dumbledore right now. He's got a purple cloak. <laughs> <laughs> I nice. swear. And a top hat. Just imagine it. Well, that's very un-Dumbledorean, but uh, I think I'll go with it. I like I like the image. Let's try to put a spin yeah. on it. Yeah. So um, what houses are you guys? Have you Do you affiliate with one? I did end up sorting myself through Pottermore because, like I said, I'm not a huge fan. Yeah, of course. So I ended up going through Pottermore. I'm kidding about not being a huge <laughs> fan. Uh, Ravenclaw, and I'm really proud of it. I'm, nice. I'm super psyched about being in Ravenclaw. Kat, if I'm not mistaken, are you Ravenclaw as well? I am a Ravenclaw. All right. Ah! Then we're we're going to have to like, secret call. like lock elbows and uh, light some fires and stuff, and it's going to be us. And then Dope. like intelligently putting them out. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. Michael, save us all. What house are you? Uh, I was sorted by Pottermore into Hufflepuff. Oh, yeah, woohoo! And I've I've gone through the uh, the seven stages of grief, and I've got no. Uh, it's it's <laughs> the uh, it's interesting reading about uh, J.K. Rowling's personal views on Hufflepuff versus the Isn't way it? she expresses it in the books, mm-hmm. yeah. because. Because her personal views on it, it's like it's her favorite house, and she really respects Hufflepuff and thinks that that um, you know the the impression that she has is that Hufflepuff doesn't have a particular thing like Griffin, you know, Gryffindor. They're like well rounded. Like and... Yeah, Hufflepuff doesn't have a thing. They're just well rounded 
sane human beings. But the way she, dis- she the way she has the sorting hat describe it is like people without a personality go over there. Yeah, it's the short bus house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, and the things that she has said ab- about Hufflepuff throughout the years have been very hilarious because they do go up and down, uh, uh-huh. you know, towards Hufflepuffs. And regardless of, you know, what she says about them, she did leave them out of the books, basically. They're the only right. common room we don't go to and all that other stuff. So, uh, I do feel a little shortchanged, but reading that welcome letter on Pottermore, I was also sorted into Hufflepuff, and really reading that welcome letter comforted me and, and made it feel like, hey, maybe it was a bigger fit than I thought it would be at first. Yeah. Well, my whole thing was I didn't I didn't know that about Mike, which is really interesting. But when I asked my buddy, I was getting when I was sorting, he was also doing it at the same time, and I'm like, what's Hufflepuff's thing again? And he was like. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, loyal. They're loyal. Loyalty is is a thing. It's it's funny because I think fan fiction has picked up on that a lot more than the the actual books did. Like fan fiction yeah. has fixated on the fact that Hufflepuff is the loyalty house much more than it, uh, the the books actually manage. And it's to, also the only that. house that doesn't outright remind you of an animal. Like you know, Ravenclaw Fetcher. sounds like a crow. Gryffindor is lion. Slytherin is snake. And then Hufflepuff is like. Kirby, you know, like, well. <laughs> or Ditto from Pokemon, right? Yeah, is it? Right. Yeah, exactly. Or was it Jigglypuff? I don't remember. It's a badger. It's a badger. Oh. It's a badger, yeah. which I thought, which I wound up thinking was appropriate because that was the point I got to after being sorted and going through the. I was like, eh, I don't give a shit. Fine, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so I truly am a Hufflepuff, obviously. Even though we've never seen the Hufflepuff common room in the Harry Potter books, we do in certain moments throughout the series. Our characters do come awfully close to them. Such as in this chapter that we right. have read for today's episode, which is chapter 21, House Elf Liberation Front. And that is of the book Goblet of Fire. And uh, we just want to remind all of our listeners to please be sure to read that chapter in Goblet of Fire before proceeding with this podcast. But, of course, as usual, before we jump into this week's chapter, we're going to talk about last week's chapter, which was chapter 20. So one of the our first comment here comes from Riddle the Muggle on our main site. It says, Harry could not carry his broom with him because it was specifically mentioned in the rules that the champions should come to the arena carrying only their wands. I think Harry had to summon his broom from his dormitory because it would have looked suspicious otherwise. If he had placed it in the stands or even in the entrance hall, it would have given away that he knew he would he would be needing it. The judges might know from how far the broom had come based on the time it took to reach Harry. Uh, so, guys, the issue uh, – we were talking about this last week. We've, he, of course, just faced off against the dragon. Um, and I was saying, well, there's this moment where he's about to be crushed to death and he, he's, he's not sure if his spell has worked because his broom's got to come all the way from his dormitory. Um, and it takes a while to get there, obviously. Um, so I guess I had asked the question, why couldn't he have dropped it off a little closer? And for somehow – like somehow we missed the fact that he wasn't supposed to like – have knowledge of needing his broom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which actually, that's a great point from Riddle the Muggle here that it really would have, I think, tipped tip things off. I mean, everybody knew. Well, it would have but... been straight up cheating. Yeah. 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 Well, it, yeah. it was an, uh, yeah, it's an open secret that everybody is cheating <laughs> when it comes to the, the, it's the, like, it's like the tournament. Tour de but, uh, <laughs> yeah, but you're not supposed to, everybody knows that, but you're not supposed to do it blatantly. Yeah, did I mean where would like the Bobat Bobatons? I don't know exactly the right way to say it. Bobatons. Where would they? Bobatons. Where would they have kept? Wait, didn't Gambon say Bobatons though? Yes, he did. But 
It's like, I'm pretty sure anything Gammon says, you can just disregard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ooh, ooh, don't go there, Eric. No, I'm totally used don't to that. Don't go there. I'm, <laughs> I'm all into Star Wars, and I don't think George Lucas has said Count Dooku the same way twice. But when it comes to <laughs> those other How houses, can you mess up Dooku? He says Doku. He says Doku, and it's just a, it's a, it's a mess. And he call he calls them laser swords. It's like he refuses to he refuses to respect the mythology that he created himself you know. deliberately. And of course, people a- anyway. like swirl off onto different little like tangents about whether or not what he said just now is canon. And goddamn it, George, you're not helping. Anyway, <laughs> how far like where would the Bobatons and Durmstrang people's have, brooms have been? Like it's if theirs would have well, been like they didn't like, use brooms. Oh, what? They did, yeah, they, right. Yeah. They each had their own way of defeating the dragon or trying to get past. Well, no, the I know, but like, the... but surely they have brooms. Surely they own them. Well, I mean, Crumb, for Crumb instance, I'm pretty does. sure well, has Crumb. a broom. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Crumb has made it this far by just mooching off of other yeah. people and their brooms. Oh yeah, he's been he's been bumming broom rides since like uh, early childhood. <laughs> no, it's it's like if theirs would have been like in the like the changing room off to one side of the sort of dragon area, then that's all right. That's not cheating. But if Harry had like, but, all right, I'm just gonna go ahead and. Tape this to the wall, right? But they're here. not. But they're not supposed to know that they're facing dragons. They're not well, yeah, supposed to be if able to any be of that them prepared. had like axioed their brooms. They would yeah. have come to them. This is the same as they came to Harry. And right. if their brooms were all like totally not suspiciously like 100 feet away, mm-hmm. then Harry could have totally gotten away with that. Right. But they. That's but they didn't. They didn't think to use broomsticks. Crumb used. Uh, he he. Conjunctivitis. Conjunctivitis. Right. Thank you. And uh, I can't remember what what Fleur did. She just punched him repeatedly. <laughs> she yeah. shot fireflies out of her butt at them. Yeah, nice. But uh, but yeah, they they weren't they didn't think to use their brooms. Harry was was the only one who thought to use it. But that's a good point. I mean, if if he had you know brought his broom with him and everyone else hadn't, that would very much be like a well. If he brings his broom into play, then it's going to seem really fishy. Hey, look, he got his broom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You're right. Good but he's hurt. not supposed to know what's coming, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cheater, no, cheater. That's a good point from Riddle the Muggle. Our next. <laughs> comment comes from again on our main site from Aridan. um Aridan, i don't think we've decided how to pronounce that yet but uh it says comment says on the faux glass i think rolling may have put in the part about seeing the whites of the enemy's eyes to reference the quote don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes end quote from the battle of bunker hill that's just a guess though i don't know i thought that was kind of clever mm. yeah i thought of i was actually that was kind of a conscious thought on my part too but i, I couldn't pin it down to hi- historically um, I was sure that somebody at some point said that it, it's just meant to denote how close somebody is to you. Yeah, I knew I well, in reading it, I, I always assume that that is a, a fairly famous saying, although I didn't know off the top of my head that it was uh, from the Battle of Bunker Hill specifically. But that that's a thing that's become, you know, a saying they, they've said it in Looney Tunes and stuff like that. And so I said I, it at the grocery store. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's it's perfectly <laughs> It's it's perfectly within um you know Rowling's sense of humor to make that like that's a that's a saying that we have in the muggle, muggle world and that is literally the way that the faux glass works. That's just kind of her her sense of humor and the way she develops certain magical uh, objects. Yeah. Our next comment here comes from our forums from Honey Duke's Empire. It says, "So I've got to wonder, how was Snape feeling while watching Harry fight a deadly dragon in this task?" Do you think he was in full panic mode on the inside because Lily's son was being put in this life-or-death situation? But is he also vindictive enough to feel pleasure at the fact that James' son is being put into the situation? Also, if Snape had found out about the dragons, would he have indirectly slipped some information to Harry about how to survive? After all, he did promise to protect him. For all that's worth. (laughs) (laughs) I find this a great question, but I kind of just want to sidestep and be like, no, Snape uh, slept in that day. 
Yeah. Well, the, I mean, probably Snape was trusting. I, I would say that probably Snape was trusting in the in the protections that were put up for the tournament because they had talked about how the tournament was was um, designed. You know, the the a couple centuries after the last time it had been done, they were bringing it back, and and there were protections and and safeguards in place so that um, co- uh, combatants or, or sorry, what are they? Competitors, uh, tra- champions. Sorry, well, my brain. Um, the champions wouldn't get get harmed or killed, which, by the way, is insane. The fact that the very first task that they have is to fight a dragon, and this is the safer <laughs> version. I, I like I I. I can't even wrap my brain around that, but um, I I would say more than likely, yes. Yeah, Snape wasn't too worried because he knew that there were a lot of protections up, so he was probably just uh, enjoying the show. And, yeah. it's pl- and if not, at least that's plausible deniability. He's like, "Hey, yeah. you guys said you had a firewall. I don't know." But <laughs> <laughs> right. up, Bing, right? So our next comment here comes from the main site, and this is from Rose Lumos. I never got the impression that Moody slash Barty Crouch Jr. was really praising Harry when he overheard him telling Cedric about the dragons. I always thought that he was upset and just hiding it. After all, if Cedric knew he had a better chance of winning and thus getting to the cup before Harry in the final task, I think the talk in his office was just an excuse to find out if Harry had a plan. Huh. So this um, this came from a discussion that we had last week about um, Barty Crouch slash Moody actually praising Harry for being kind and helpful to Cedric, which we thought was, you know, a little odd given his personality. So Hmm. I think part of it is that Moody, a fake Moody, obviously, uh, was Mm. trying to gain Harry's trust. He was trying to, to get into a, I I think the ultimate goal, um, in this comment is right. The, The whole goal was to open up a conversation with Harry uh, so about he would have like an inside track that, on how Harry was feeling about it at every yeah, step that, of the way. Yeah, about the fact that he had a plan and to plant the plan in Harry's mind if need be. Um, but first he had to first he had to gain Harry's confidence um, that he wasn't he wasn't in trouble for for cheating with Cedric and et cetera et cetera and kind of probably making him feel better about cheating in the sense that he was talking to somebody about it. He was talking to a teacher about it when he wasn't supposed to be. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, so before we jump into the last comment here, I just wanted to quickly give a shout-out to Knight Griffinpuff. Um, We had talked about Star Wars very briefly, I guess, in this episode, as well as the last one, and they appreciated my Tauntaun comment. We were talking about what would happen if the dragon had eaten Harry, and I said they would slice him right open like the Tauntaun and pull him out. (laughs) So I just wanted to get... Hey, guys, Wow. First of all, that is the best impression of a Tauntaun I've ever heard anybody do. Not not that many people have attempted it in front of me. Well, I'm exceptional in many ways. I am ashamed. But <laughs> I actually, in Star Wars, does tend to come up fairly frequently uh, in everything, doesn't it? I mean, it just it does. does. Yes. But I heard a joke about a Tauntaun. I don't want to forget. I want I want to tell it to you guys. I'm sure you've, you experts, you probably already heard it. But uh, what was the the interior temperature of the Tauntaun? I don't know. It was lukewarm. <laughs> <laughs> So that about wraps it up for the day. Uh, I may have, I may have <laughs> that said that That is a joke straight from a Hufflepuff, folks. But, uh, it, oh. Oh, you know, I love you. I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> All right. So for our last comment um, from last week, this comes from the forums from Hufflepuff Skeen. And it's um, a pretty great comment here. It's, it's Noah, if you're listening, buddy, this one's for you. So it says, you guys didn't mention the issues involved with Cedric's strategy to get the egg. He transfigured a rock into a Labrador, which I imagine was immeasurably cute and probably got annihilated by that dragon. So, is that Labrador alive? Did Cedric just commit animal abuse? Did he bring that lab into life and offer it up as bait and then let it get slaughtered in front of an audience? If I was in that audience, I don't think I could watch a poor dog get incinerated. Why is Hermione not upset about this? Even if you don't want to technically categorize it as alive, it would still be hard to watch something that looks in every way like a cute Labrador blasted by a dragon. Wizards are harsh. Well, I refer back to the uh, the seminal classic Jurassic Park when, when I say that life finds a way. Uh, and also that's a story, if not a parable, about the perils of playing God. And, and I do feel like Cedric should have been reprimanded if the animal came to harm. But I'm sure that the American Humane Society was there or the AJ or the <laughs> ASPCA. Someone was there. Yeah, it, uh, it was, was a, a rock. It was, it was a, a rock that looked like a um, – I mean they go the other way in Transfiguration. You know, they, they turn, uh, they turn bugs into belt buckles and stuff like that. So I don't mm-hmm. think they're, they are as concerned with, uh, animal rights as we might be in watching them. And also, like I just mentioned, they, they are throwing students to dragons and their favorite <laughs> sport involves people getting smashed in the head with flying steel balls. So it is safe to say that wizards and their, uh, their, what they find entertaining is pretty harsh. Well, the title of her post was Desk Pig, and we have this whole discussion. I think I mentioned this to you briefly, Teague. Um, there's a desk in the very first novel that McGonagall turns into a, big, a pig and then back into a desk. We have probably oh, talked about it for, I don't know, 10 hours. It's like the pot least. of petunias in Hitchhiker's Guide where it's like, not again, yep. and then it smashes into the ground. <laughs> right. And so we've talked at length about if it's a pig, is it a desk? Could you eat it? What would it taste like? Would it harm you? All this stuff. So Hufflepuff Skeen, loyal listener, was just bringing that to our attention. So thank you. Well, I, if I'm not mistaken, the dragon was going for the the dog and then changed its mind last minute. And that's how Cedric got a lot of, of uh, his body parts burned. Right. Um, so is so that, hopefully, that dog is still it, out there somewhere. So the dog is fine. It probably just either met up with the Homeward Bound pets who were finding their <laughs> way home uh, or it turned back into a rock in the corner. But hold on a second. If there is no limitation on what you can transfigure into what else, then how is there scarcity in any market in the Harry Potter universe? Why is Hagrid well, excited rules, when he finds right? a very rare animal? Like he could just take that guitar over there, which is out of tune anyway. Screw that guitar, and then turn it into an incredibly rare beast. And then, and then again, like with food, if you can turn anything into pigs, you can't. There's a rule. Oh, there okay. is a rule. Is there a rule? Gantz law? Is that? Yep. Mm-hmm. Of okay. elemental transfiguration. And so you, well, you can't like create something from nothing. You can move it around a little bit though. So perhaps it would just be like a really out of tune, uh, Labrador, you know, <laughs> <if> you <change laughs> your... <laughs> which I don't know what that would sound like, but please, please, people do not submit entries. <laughs> we do not want your sound clips of your out of tune Labrador. Just please no. My, my assumption has kind of always been that transfiguration is, is simply impermanent. Like you, you can't permanently change one thing into another. That's even and more so, horrifying though. Cause if not for <laughs> McGonagall immediately turning it into a desk, that pig would have just slowly become a desk. Yeah. That's a Cronenberg <laughs> film, sir. Exactly. Well, See, I, you get it. You I've get been, it. I, I've always been bothered by, I, uh, it was, the Chamber of Secrets movie, I don't think they do the same thing in the book, but of course um, McGonagall's transfiguration, she turns she turns a bird into a water goblet. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. Ron tries it. Yeah, it is chamber because Ron's wand is broken. So Ron tries it on Scabbers, and it only goes halfway. That, right. It has played for last, but that is the most horrifying thing in the entire movie series because you can still hear it squeaking, and that's terrible. Starting as an animal and going that way is wrong. But uh, starting as a rock and turning it into an animal and back, I don't think is uh, is that bad. We couldn't agree it's more, still fundamentally man. a rock. You so belong here. I am a rock. I am an island. No? Anybody? No? I'm clapping on the inside. Mm. Now we're going to move on to our podcast question of the week responses from last week. Our question was, just as a quick reminder here, says, we see Harry and he's really struggling after he finds out that the first task is dragons. He has absolutely no idea what to do. So let's pretend that nobody cheated. What would Harry do? When he got to the arena and saw the dragon... What would be his first instinct? Okay. And we got, as you can imagine, a, a varied amount of responses. But our first one here is from Pawns and Bowties. Nice Doctor Who reference. I like it. it. says, I think Harry would have reacted in a similar way, though of course he would have been more stressed. He was already learning summoning charms and had at least a little experience with dragons prior to this, Norbert mainly, which leads me to believe that all that really would have changed would be how much sleep he had got the night before and how frazzled he would be going into the tournament. Cedric, on the other hand, might have been killed. We know that he is injured by the dragon even when knowing what is coming due to Harry's Hogwarts loyalties. If he had not known that dragons were coming, I fear he, we would have lost Cedric much earlier in the competition. Interesting comment. Hmm. I love pawns. <laughs> <laughs> I love bow ties. Yeah, bow ties are cool. Um, but uh, I, I disagree. I think I I don't think that uh, I don't think that Harry knew anything about summoning charms before he sat down in the library with Hermione and began practicing. Um, so I, I mean, I think that's just uh, maybe a misreading or inaccurate for whatever reason. But the fact that he had to sit down, it took him all night. Uh, the wee hours of the night, an entire day before that, to learn the summoning charm. If he hadn't known what to prepare for, uh, if Moody hadn't really just sat it on his lap, um, he would definitely have not used a summoning charm. No, hold in- up, Holmes, because he definitely, um, they talk about that he was learning it in class, and he wasn't getting it. Well, he wasn't getting it. Yeah. It's, it's and now the, he was getting it. The summoning charm is um, uh, previously established in the books, in this book. Rather, I, we first see it when uh, Mrs. Weasley is is summoning all of the the Weasley twins' stuff out of their pockets. Oh, good call. So, good call. so we do know that it exists, but as for Harry's capacity to use it, that's a well, different question entirely. I think that that entirely. eighteen hours, and, and whether or not he would have thought to use it, is is the bigger yeah. question. I mean, that eighteen hours that he sits and studies it because he has to because Moody told him to do it. Um, is really crucial in this point. So I definitely don't think... I think his summoning charm is off the table for what he would have used if he didn't know about the dragons. Yeah. I actually agree with that completely. Okay. Good. Our next comment here comes from Archduke Severus. He says, I think Harry would have definitely not thought to use something like the summoning charm. He probably would have either tried to use... combat magic that he knew on the dragon, hexes and stuff, or run around dodging the dragon until he got to the middle. He may have even repeated what Ron did in Philosopher's Stone and used the levitation charm to knock out the dragon, like the <laughs> troll. As unprepared as he was, I still think he would have survived and found a way to get the task done. Yeah, I guess there are a lot of rocks you can throw at the dragon. It'd be a short book if he didn't. 
I was going to say, you know, there's a lot of really clever ways of getting around this. And I'm I'm even I'm looking at the responses that we've already read and the ones that are coming still. And it's like, yeah, these are all good ideas. I'm going to be the one who says, I think Harry dies. I I, I think he dies. (laughs) I think that unless he can transfigure the dragon into like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, which I'm still not positive he couldn't do. What Uh, did you do, Ray? Um, so exactly. Do, it just yeah, popped do we in there. Think then that that do we think then we have to thank Moody uh, or Barty Crouch Jr. at this point for saving Harry's life? I've um, always said that that guy got a bad rep. No, <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I wonder if I I wonder what the rule would have been. In it, I mean, is it like Quidditch? Would that would the task have continued going indefinitely until Harry had figured out something to do or been killed? Hmm. Well, like, what? Where's hmm. the? Where's the? clock is there a clock right and if there is probably the smartest thing for harry to have done with in in terms of the overall um scheme of what was happening around him is just sit down and wait out the clock and be like i'm going to try to get myself disqualified from this competition so i don't have to do this anymore Hmm. yeah for sure and there definitely is a clock because at the end when he does uh when he is successful they say he captured the egg in the fastest of all of them but that doesn't mean that there was, like, a time limit. Well, so if his time exceeded the time of the other three champions, they could stop the been, clock. Yeah, or he, yeah. Yeah, that certainly would have made him last place. Yeah. Our next comment here comes from Leah McCurdy. She says, I like the premise of this question. So if no one had cheated to help him out with the dragons in particular, I was thinking back to the other sticky, sticky situations Harry had been in, and it struck me that when Harry is really faced with life or death, he does something instinctual but not particularly magical. He doesn't go for his wand. He does something physical, something intensely brave, putting his body into it. I think this illustrates a larger concept about Harry as a person overall in the series. He overcomes evil through his love, through his heart. As a true Gryffindor, he has the heart of a lion. So this makes me think his personhood is intrinsically tied to physicality through instinctual courage and almost primal responses. I like the idea that even though he has magic at his disposal, our hero instinctually goes for the physical option using his heart and his grit to overcome evil. Wow. That is Yeah, I mean it's it's a really it's a really great comment, but doesn't really answer the question. I agree with Leah though. It's just but but then what's he gonna use? His shoes. Uh, a rock. But he's gonna throw it. He's not gonna use magic to, to toss it. Yeah. Um the thing isn't this the difference though? I mean, based on what she was saying, couldn't that just be the difference between somebody who grew up knowing they were going to be a wizard and Harry, who the first eleven years had to learn those basic motor skills and basic—I don't want to say combat, but I mean, him and Dudley, you know, growing up, there there was some scuffles uh, where he physically kind of had to react uh, to certain things. So, couldn't that just be the difference between that kind of the different way in which he was raised? Yeah, I think so. Magic's not an instinct for him. Hmm. Yeah, the same, uh, I mean, the same thing happens with, uh, you know, towards the end of Philosopher's Stone with Hermione. She's trying to make a fire and she's panicking because there's no wood. It's because yeah, she yeah. grew up in the muggle world. She doesn't, yeah. that's not the first place her, her mind goes. But you did also bring up, um, an interesting point about, um, it, him growing up with Dudley and, and his, his magical abilities coming out in moments of really high stress. I wonder if that might have happened if something completely unexpected would have happened just because he needed it to because otherwise he was going to get killed. He accidentally blows up the dragon and just floats away. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that's probably as likely as anything else too because, I mean, um, going back to that, when he apparated by accident or we assume he apparated from the story of him just appearing on the school rooftop. Mm. um, And that takes a lot of, 
you know, effort later on in the series, um, two, three years later, and he did it by accident when he was a kid. So, yeah, I think there's something to that. <laughs> and Dragon just goes, poof. Poof. Or inflates like Marge and just floats away like a balloon or go at the end of its tether. Just and and Alfonso Cuarón just, like, films the hell out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so our last comment here comes from Clem Drummer, a.k.a. Uh, Mr. Obvious. Once I read the comment, you'll understand says, Crouch made sure Harry knew what the first task was because he needed him to succeed and eventually reach the Triwizard Cup first. If nobody had cheated, then Harry's name would never have come out of the goblet, and he would have been sitting with his friends, encouraging Cedric, who probably wouldn't have known beforehand. Very true. But that's not the point of the question of the week, is it? So No, no. And but I think you get Cedric, an A-plus for effort. Cedric probably would have died. Um, yeah. Either but, Cedric would have died or, again, it seems like cheating behind the scenes is kind of de rigueur for the Triwizard Tournament. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Crumb Crum knew without having to be told by Harry or, or by Crouch. Yeah. Fleur knew. So Crum- more than likely it would have gotten to Cedric. Probably more than likely Harry still would have been the one to tell him because probably Hagrid would have shown him the dragons. Which would, which he, there was, there was no, uh, restriction, there would have been no restriction against since Harry wasn't one of the competitors and Harry would not have been able to resist telling Cedric. Right. That is so true. He would have stumbled upon somebody else cheating, you know, or Crumb finding out or Fleur finding out and then he would have gone and done it. Yeah. You just cast Um, some major character aspersions, Michael. One, (laughs) Crumb is a very bright young boy. And two, Hagrid can keep a secret like no one else. (laughs) So take your negative comments and go home. Wow. Uh, and, you know, I was just wondering, I, I bet, Kat, do you know if anybody just suggested this? I had this idea that uh, Harry, if he didn't know what to do, we were faced with a dragon all of a sudden. Wouldn't he just, you know, for future time's sake, give it a good old Expelliarmus? <laughs> um, nobody said that, unfortunately. Nobody said, well, let me be unique then. As um, always. Yeah, that's... That's that's pretty much his go-to spell for those of you reading at home. If it's not yet in the series, it certainly comes to that later. Yeah. Um, but um, so that was a little bit of a long recap this week, but um, really good stuff. And there's tons of more good stuff, as you know, where it lives, alohomora.mugglenet.com and on our forums. So go check it out. Comment. Do it. Do it. That's right. Do it. Chapter 21. The House Elf Liberation Front. Well, guys, this week's chapter is chapter 21. And like many chapters in the Harry Potter books, it starts off right where the previous chapter ended. How cool is that? So, Ron and Harry are friends again. It's all very lovely. And uh, they're both very excited from what just happened. And they actually get into a little bit of dialogue that I thought was very interesting right off the bat. Ron tells Harry that he has a great deal of confidence that Harry can win this thing, meaning the whole Triwizard Tournament. He says, quote, There's no way the other tasks will be as dangerous as that. How could they be? He's right, right? Dragons. But Hermione has a different opinion. She says, Harry's still got a long way to go before he finishes. If that was the first task, just imagine what there'll be next. My question is, guys, who is right? Well, the question is, like, as for incentives for the people who designed the tournament in the first place, do they have any reason to try to call out people at the first step? Because if they do, then maybe that was the one that they put up to try to kill kids off. 
But otherwise, I'd be like, I would expect it to get worse. I would not expect it to get easier, certainly. I mean... Well, it's just, yeah. it's, it's just Ron... It's a programming question, really. It's, it's essentially Ron's lack of imagination, to an extent. He looks at that, and he <laughs> says... He, uh, really, he, he looks at it, and he sees dragons, and he's like, what, what else can they do? What can they do to you that's worse than throwing dragons at you? And, of course, one of the things we find is that... For example, the underwater task, there's an element of kind of psychological warfare going on where they're, you know, you're panicking about someone you care about being in danger. And, and can you can you keep that? Can, can you keep your head while you're while you're concerned? about? Yeah, that? yeah, I, I guess I can. Wow. For the first time and only once you said that, did I actually gain what I believe is a glimpse into what Rowling was actually trying to do with that task in the book. But I'm going to side with Ron just because I really think he's right. I really think that the dragons, you know, knowing what we know of the future tasks, if you can leave aside the fact that Cedric and Harry, what happens after the third task happens somewhere completely else by no design of the Triwizard Tournament, really the third task is a maze. It's a fun interactive maze. And if Barty Crouch Jr. weren't going around you know, attacking people in it, it would have been pretty uh, lackluster and dull and safe. Well, uh, aside from the, the acromantula task, and sphinxes and who knows what else sphinxes, that people are running uh, up to. But okay, so then the underwater thing, again, this is obviously a later chapter. I'm sure we'll talk about it more, you know, when that happens. But really, did you? were they really going to leave everybody else to drown? Like Harry's the need to grab um, Fleur's little sister, you know, Gabriella, after she's attacked. And he gets extra points for it. Was she really going to be left for dead? Yo, 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 you're jumping ahead, man. No, but I think that those are fundamental questions because really the first task I think is the hardest and and was the most dangerous. No, they specifically – I mean, you know, he's specifically kind of reprimanded by Hermione to be like, come on. Did you you really think they were going to let us drown? And so the implication is obviously no. That's not what would have happened if if he had failed. But he didn't know that. Mm Mm-hmm. But but so uh, with the dragon, it still seems up front, a dragon is 15 feet in front of you. You have to get an egg from under it. Still seems like the biggest, worst task. I disagree. I do. I, ag- I, I actually agree with you on that front. When I, you know, in retrospect, assuming I can figure out some way to not breathe for an hour, I think it's actually the most, like, there's the most menace inherent in that task. I just mm-hmm. like the sort of implication that Ron is like what, whatever he's imagining coming after it is like arm wrestling in a bake off or something like yeah. he's like well it's not going to be that bad God I I think I think it's the um it's the most dangerous I don't think it's the hardest I agree with that that's a good distinction which I think is uh, very different things between danger and difficulty it's a nice distinction so as we find often in the Harry Potter books when we're you know when Ron has one idea and Hermione has the complete opposite. Uh, the truth ends up being somewhere in the middle. So that's nice. Um, but basically, Harry is really enjoying being Ron's friend again. He tells him all the information that he learned from Sirius uh, in the common room fire, which is what the thing that Ron walked in on the other day. Awkward. And basically, he just tells him that Karkaroff was a Death Eater. Ron says they probably should have known. Lucius and Karkaroff probably were running around at the Quidditch World Cup with their masks on. Again, it's Ron's active imagination kind of getting the best of him here, but it's possible. But he's right, isn't he? I mean... Probably. Uh, I think he's right about Malfoy. I don't think he's right about Karkaroff, Karkaroff given right. given what Karkaroff does later sure. um, when the mark starts coming back. I don't think he was involved. Mm. Innocent until proven guilty, but man. Then, but then again, everybody panicked. All of those people panicked when the when the mark went up. They weren't They weren't doing it out of loyalty to, to Voldemort, they were doing it just because they were all there and they thought it'd be kind of a lark. So maybe he was. 
Well, Karkaroff was probably at the World Cup, yeah? I was thinking because he's the headmaster of the school that Crum attends, but I don't think, now I'm thinking that that's not much of a, enough of a, a binding thing for him to go support his, you know, sometimes student when he's an international Quidditch star. Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, as far as we know, Dumbledore wasn't at the, at the cup, so. Right. Um, but then again, Harry wasn't playing in the, <laughs> in the World Cup, so. Right. I don't know, I don't think Kobe Bryant's kindergarten teacher comes out for games. <laughs> Uh, actually, I have it on good authority that Kobe Bryant's kindergarten teacher comes to every game. I can't dispute you. Conceded. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so Harry, uh, again, with with his excitement over his uh, unexpected triumph over this dragon, it's just riding on that excitement. He writes Sirius this huge, long letter, um, which they give to Pigwidgeon. I forget where Hedwig is, um, but they give it to Pigwidgeon. And Pig can barely carry it. Harry and Ron are up in the owlery. Ron gives him the letter, and Pig drops, it says, like, 12 feet in the air <laughs> before he carries it off. And this is just, we've talked about this a little bit before, about J.K. Rowling just giving these great, you know, character moments to these owls and these animals. And it's just really kind of... A, a chapter titled House of Liberation Front, I was expecting to read all about the house elves. And they kind of bore me, so I was just really excited that the chapter was starting off with such a luster that it had in the previous chapter. I just, like from a, like a practical standpoint, imagining that this is a letter that I'm sending to someone who's still of interest to everybody, that if it looks right off the bat like that bird is not going to be able to hack it, I just go, wait, wait, come back, come back, come back. Sorry. Yeah, isn't that a super suspicious bird? I'll trim bird? this down. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think, I think the reason they... if. I, I may be mistaken, but I think the reason they didn't use Hedwig was specifically because they didn't want they didn't want Hedwig to be seen going to where Sirius was She's was too hiding out. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. And so I think they they decided to use um, Pigwidgeon instead for that. Hmm. And Pig's well, got spirit. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> got to give it to him for Moxie. That's right. Mm, Moxie. Uh, and of course, they leave the Allery when Ron says, "We'd better get going to your surprise party, Harry." <laughs> um, I guess he ruined the surprise. Yeah, well, yeah, pretty much. It's Ron. I would, as speaking as a Harry, uh, just speaking as Harry's alter ego right now, I, I appreciated it when he said that. To be honest with you, I like having a heads up. Y- yeah. Oh, so you're one of those people. No surprises, right? Hey, man, my heart can explode real easy. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I love surprises, just for future reference. It's a, well, it, and it's almost—I guess it's the same thing. Where he's like, "Well, you were, you were fully capable of pretending you didn't know a dragon was coming. You can probably handle pretending not to know a surprise party's coming, but it's better you're warned." <laughs> oh, it's true. Fair it's enough. true. Well, uh, quickly thereafter, there is a party in the common room. Whoop 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 whoop. Um, <laughs> Whoa, wait, whoa there. This is not the Hufflepuff common room, guys. Don't get uh, too too far ahead of yourself. Ain't that right, Michael? Um, yeah. Hufflepuff's way into dubstep. <laughs> um, but uh, party in the common room, everybody. Fred and George, uh, they have some food that they got from the kitchens. Hermione is a little suspicious of that food, but we'll get to that later. Um, it turns out that Dean Thomas, who is great at drawing, has drawn some banners of Harry facing the Hungarian horntail. And uh, some other banners featuring Cedric Diggory, the proud Hufflepuff, with his head on fire. Harsh. I guess he's so, more of a Jacob fan. House, <laughs> house Pride. <laughs> How's that for House Pride? Um, but uh, quickly, things escalate because Harry is coaxed into opening this egg. 
which he's been given, and, and we've been told in the previous chapter this is going to give you a clue to the next uh, the next task. So he opens it up, and there's this loud, loud screeching sound, and quickly he has to close it. But there's nothing in the egg; it just it's 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 hollow on the inside. Essentially. He thinks that the the sound that that comes from there, the closest he's ever heard to it, was at Nicholas uh, nearly had his next death day party when they had that ghost band uh, all playing musical saws. Um, Seamus Finnegan comes right up and says, "Hey, Harry, that sounded like a banshee. Maybe you'll you'll be facing a banshee. Maybe that'll be what the second task is all about." But Neville has a different opinion. Still, he says it sounded like somebody being tortured. Perhaps you'll have to go up against the Cruciatus Curse in your next mm. thing. Now, my comment on this is that it seems like, really especially with Seamus and Neville, they're pulling from their backstory, even though we don't know it yet with Neville, um, except for the scene in Moody's classroom, which which happened recently with the Unforgivable Curses lesson. Um, you know, Seamus, uh, from the country where the Banshee is most popular, he may have actually heard a Banshee before, and Neville, having experienced this torture, coming out with, that's what he hears when the egg is open. So, is it a different sound coming from the egg, or really is it just this incoherent, you know, screech? I think it's just the the... I think they're all hearing the screeching of the mermaid because it's what it's what mermaid voices sound like above water. Um mm. so they're they're all projecting their guesses as to what it means, but I do think they're all hearing the same thing. And I think it's a you know, it's clever that they that, that they what you said about it reflecting stuff that they've heard in their lives and they're just kind of bringing that to it. Yeah, they're is a good observation. And I like to think that like Hermione thought it was a bus stopping or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Fred and George, you know, never to be the, 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 the dreary ones here, do really save the day um, by joking uh, that they think it sounds like Percy when he sings. And uh, I think it's Fred says, Harry, maybe you'll have to attack Percy when he's in the shower uh, as, as the second task. Can you imagine the second task of the Triwizard Tournament? There's a showering wizard. You, <laughs> you just have to tackle him without... Slipping on the soap, you know, something like that. I, oh, no, we know that the twins often make jokes like this. Um, but I'm just submitting to the listeners and to myself, I want to write this down. This has to be one of the actual, like, I think the funniest jokes that the, the, the twins, the funniest quips, the funniest, you know, make, cause I, here I am thinking, oh my god, Neville's witnessing his own parents. It's not like the Dementor, it doesn't make him relive it. But here I am thinking Neville just went to a really dark place and then they bring it up by saying you, you may just have to go attack Percy, who nobody likes at this point in the book. Um, so I, I have to say that I think that's probably one of their funniest jokes of all time, the whole series. I agree. It, it is very funny. It never occurred to me that they were potentially doing it to kind lighten of the mood. To, to lighten the mood and to particularly kind of help lift Neville out of that that place as well. So. Or maybe they were just being good party hosts and being like, okay, Longbottom. Anyway, so <laughs> lol. Yeah, yeah, lol. Uh, well, he gets a little bit more of a laugh when they transform him into a canary. <laughs> right. Um, I wanted to see that so bad in the movie. Uh, It'd be yeah. so amazing. Like a giant mat-sized canary. <laughs> of all the things they left out of Goblet of Fire for the movie, that's the one you're going to go to task for? <laughs> no, no, no. Just like I like the, the the funny moments in this book, I feel like are some of the like best ones of the series. This and is true. This, uh, you know. As we've discussed, this is one of my least favorite movies. So, yeah, they—I mean—they cut—they uh, uh, cut pretty much all of the the preamble to the Weasley's Wizard Weezes stuff. None of that, I think, uh, remained in in this movie. Yeah, yeah, gone. It comes—it comes up in the next one, but not in this one. Poof, mm-hmm. gone. Poof. 
Um, so that's, uh, that's really it for that party. It was really, it was just great to see Harry's own house, including Ron, able to support him, uh, in his triumph. But next day. Wait, you missed the, the baby sleeping dragon. What baby? Oh, okay, okay. So Harry's going to bed that night, and one of the cutest things to happen <laughs> ever, uh, in the, in the Harry Potter series In the happens. history of life. Cat, cat, why don't you just why don't you tell us what it is? Because I know he you're put, passionate. He about puts it. his little baby model dragon next to his bed. It yawns. It curls up and goes to sleep. Oh. And he thinks his his sleeping thoughts are, hmm. I can see what Hagrid was thinking of. These dragons, they're pretty swell, aren't they? Yeah, it's just the cutest little thing ever. And I want a little baby dragon that never gets bigger than that. I want a little horn tail. I want a little baby well, most animals. I agree yeah. with the premise that the babies are always cute. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, there are people in Florida who get a baby crocodile because it's like, ah, <laughs> these are so cute. Well, alligator. But, eh, yeah. And it's like, hey, this is adorable. And then in, like, two weeks, it's eating your baby. Well, the, well it's, it's, it's not a baby dragon. It's a model dragon. They have right, enchanted models. Right. In this. Oh, it, it's an enchanted action figure, essentially. Well, then I want an enchanted baby elephant and an enchanted <laughs> baby puppy and an enchanted pony. And I want an but, enchanted but, platypus. Because it's established, uh, it's established earlier in the book that they even have – they're literally action figures because Ron buys a crumb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and eventually, eventually the spell wears off. But yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I always yeah. wanted that – I'm sure – I'm sorry to bring you guys back. Three books, but what happens – like if you tear a leg off a chocolate frog, does it react like realistically? Because that's horrifying. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, you have to – yeah, you, you just have to have bite to into them. Like, yeah. You have to the, eat it whole. Starts... That's why so many deaths happen when people get chocolate frogs. You have to yeah, eat it whole. <laughs> yeah, it's like eating squids in Japan. you got to be so careful with that. So as, so as to never answer that question uh, in, the, in the whole history of canon ever. Um, but uh, speaking of Hagrid, the next day, it's class, just like usual, and they go to Hagrid for care of magical creatures. Look, guys – this class is ridiculous. Um, and they're all drunk. Is it redonkulous? Yeah, there's something wafting over from Madame Maxine's <laughs> uh, horse cart. Where Did you say wafting? 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 Wait, wafting. is that not... <laughs> wafting? I would go wafting. <laughs> it's wafting from... Uh, sorry, I'm from the East Coast originally. We say waft. waft no, you know, I like, say wafting. Uh, I'm, I'm from the not quite East Coast then. Um, where it's, where it's... I'm from the place where they say that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm from the place where they say wafting. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, anyway, it's wafting over from Madame Maxime's horse carriages where they only drink single malt whiskey. Um, apparently this whole class is getting a nice whiff of it. Um, regardless, the blast-ended scroots, which we've heard about, read about previously, are now six feet long. Six feet long. That's one and a half inches taller than I am currently. Um, there are only ten of them, thank God, uh, because they keep killing each other. And Hagrid, who doesn't know if they hibernate or not, has devised these boxes with pillows in them and wants to get the class to kind of try and herd these scroots into these boxes. This sounds like something out of fan fiction. This is just a bad idea. This is just, how could Hagrid be so... Silly about it. It goes back to what I was just saying. You get them when they're all cute and tiny, but then look what happens. <laughs> well, Hagrid is not. Ha- Hagrid is very naive. I, I think is is. No. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, that's that's his character. He's he's naive, and I th- I think part of it is because he's a half giant, and so few things can hurt him. He doesn't really think about. He do- he doesn't he doesn't think to practice caution, and he doesn't know how to teach caution. 
Uh, and also mm. he's, he's making it up as he goes along with the Scroots because he, he, he created them. He literally has no idea any of their properties. He just thought it would be neat. <laughs> as we discover later. I, I never thought of it before as him having like, him not feeling, not getting hurt easily because he is like possibly like thicker skin, mm. you know? Like, which, which definitely comes into play. I think it's book six when he gets a lot of spells cast on him. And he just doesn't feel it as heavily. Just this idea that he is, you know, more careless as a rule because he's bigger and actually doesn't, you know, the burns don't hurt him as much. So he kind of downplays what the students are feeling when they yeah. get burned and, and stabbed and stuck. Yeah, he's a, he's a very sweet guy, but he's not, he doesn't have that kind of empathy. He, he looks at the scroots and he goes, well, they're not very dangerous to me, so they're not dangerous, you know? I mean, that's the same way he is with dragons and all that other stuff. He's like, those are neat, and I see no danger in them, so I don't understand why other people see danger in them. There's something that's very ominous, though, and it's really the headline of this whole scene. A headline, of course, because I'm thinking of Rita Skeeter. Um, But she shows up. uh, Hagrid says, I don't think you were supposed to be on school grounds, and she just kind of ignores him. Uh, But she asks where the Scroots came from. And Hagrid kind of goes quiet and turns red a little bit. And there's the silence, and Harry's wondering where did Hagrid, you know, what what happened? Where did Hagrid get these scroots? Hermione saves the day by saying, "Oh, this is a very interesting class, isn't it?" Harry drawing Rita's attention to the fact that Harry is there. Of course, Harry, her her prized pig here that she writes about uh, all the time. So throw him under the bus. <laughs> really thrown under the bus, but but to save Hagrid from this abuse here that he was about, or this uh, reveal. Which she's protecting Hagrid. This is a good, you know, moment for Hermione's character because she's protecting him without knowing the answer. But as they're walking away from class, they still don't know the answer. And and Harry kind of really hopes that Hagrid got these blast-ended scroots that he came by them in a in a legal way because you know, don't you know it? Hagrid, naive Hagrid, set up an appointment with uh, Rita Skeeter on Friday night. Bow chicka wow wow, um, <laughs> to go and talk more about what it is he does at the school. Um, and Harry's just worried that she's going to misuse his words, you know, the way that we know that Rita Skeeter does, and it's going to cause a big problem. And hopefully, hopefully it doesn't. But I'm just kind of curious where he got the scroots from. I mean, I think it's it's fairly naive of Harry in that instance to think, well, hopefully Hagrid got it from a legitimate source. Because it's like, when Hagrid gets things from illegitimate sources, he sometimes doesn't he- hesitate to blurt that fact out. So the fact that it was bad enough that he hesitated... <laughs> To tell Rita where they come from is is a really significant signal, well, I think. You know that Hagrid like created the blast and screws, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what I, that's okay. what I was. Well, that's what it turns out to to be is that he he crossbred them himself. But oh, yeah. see, I must so have what, forgotten. I must have forgotten that particular. Uh, note yeah, it, it comes out in it comes out in the interview that he he crossbred them from manticores and fire crabs, which oh. with without the uh, without the approval of the ministry. Yeah, I was wow. going to say, some things just shouldn't be stuck together. <laughs> this is what I'm saying about Jurassic Park, you guys. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. but when, when has he really been, again, you know, he, he got himself a dragon because he thought he'd be cool, even though the ministry is clearly not <laughs> okay with that. Um, and so he doesn't, he doesn't really think things through in that way. We have a T-Rex. That would be an interesting breeding session to see. Yeah. Oh, Lord. <laughs> and MuggleNet fanfiction is live and well. <laughs> No, prodding um, him with his umbrella. <laughs> oh, Fanfiction.mugglenet.com. Come on, you two. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know you Come want on. to. Um, Have at it, you. 
compliment her on her looks. You know, you, she, <laughs> you know she looks nice tonight. As if Haggard has any fashion sense. Um, but uh, essentially, after Care of Magical Creatures class, they have divination. Harry and Ron essentially just laugh their way through it. It's really relaxing. It's it's meant to underscore again that Harry and Ron are friends again. Um, let's say too much happens. Strawny goes on, on about. I picked up on a really interesting bit in in the divination class. Actually, ooh, if you go don't on. Mind me bringing it up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so at the bottom of page three seventy two in the U.S. edition, so they're talking about. Um, Trelawney is, of course, predicting death. It's coming closer and closer, as always. And, and Lavender and Pravati are just <gasps> hands over their mouth, right? Oh, my God. Right. And, um, of course, she's staring at Harry. And Harry was like, listen, I'd be more impressed if she hadn't done it about 80 times before. And the quote is, but if I dropped dead every time she's told me I'm going to, I'd be a medical miracle. And Ron says, you'd be a sort of extra concentrated ghost. And I wondered if that was true. Is Harry an extra concentrated ghost? No. If What's somebody kept continually like coming back to life and dying, would uh, would their level of ghostliness be affected? If, like, if are you a then... cumulative ghost every time you die? You know. Huh. Well, you, I, I would I would argue that you have a choice when you die. To, uh, well, assuming you're not coming back. See, Harry screwed this all up because he had a choice to either die or not. Um, but if you – I think you can only be any kind of ghost, strong or weak or anything after you've died and aren't coming back. Um, where it's essentially – say you're you're in this afterlife purgatory plane and you don't go towards the white light, OK, you get to be a ghost. But if you choose to come back, you know, take the train back into the real world, I don't think you can be any kind of ghost. Yeah. I, Even well, if you die again? Well, the, the trouble is also with Horcruxes because like only you, – you can actually divide your soul up so that it's – like not all in your body, which is weird too. Like that's like all of it's still on the earth, but it's not all in your body. So there is that. Um, the fact that your soul can kind of flake off. So the real trouble is that we don't have a precedent for. I mean, we in the Muggle world we have people who you know were were legally dead or medically dead for two minutes and then came back. We don't know of any of that happening in uh, the Potter world. All we know. Is that you can't come back from death? Uh, it's very and the so the fact that really Harry is the only person who does that, um, who who dies later. Spoilers, I guess. If anybody is <laughs> listening to this show and hasn't read the whole series, um, oops, sorry. Uh, Dumbledore kills Snape, but uh, <laughs> and then <laughs> okay, um, Sheldon. But the, but then there's also. Um, I mean, really, the only precedent we have for that kind of thing, dying and coming back over and over again, is Fox. And mm. uh, because he dies and comes back over and over again, there's never going to be an opportunity for him to be a ghost because he will always resurrect, it's like as Groundhog far as we Day. know. Hmm. Very, very interesting, Cat. Well, something to ponder. But, wait, hold on. I can wait, Cat. I got, I got, I got, I got one for you. Got so what if... What if I split off my soul into Horcruxes, but then I get a soul back? So I got like one-seventh of my soul, and then my bodily form dies. Am I one-seventh as opaque as a normal ghost would be? That's that's the – I don't know, man. Well, according according to according to Voldemort later in this very book, actually, um, when that when that exact thing happens to him, he – what's left of – what's left of his soul when his body is destroyed is less than a ghost, not more. 
Mm, yeah. I was less than ghost. I was less than the weakest breeze off yeah. the eastern seaboard. So there you go. He would be like whatever, however many you divided it into, that fraction of the opacity of a ghost. Or it's funny to imagine maybe it's just a size thing, like he's just a little short ghost. I don't know. <laughs> but and and ultimately the the whole point is that nobody could die as much <laughs> as Trelawney predicts that Harry will die. Yes. Yes, it's absolutely true. And and the amount of time that she spends gazing in front of these crystals and, and balls, or at least says she does, but I really think she does. Um, it's unfortunate considering she only yields in her life, you know, two great predictions. Yeah, well. That we're aware of. You know, she's doing better than Nostradamus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like the, the, impre- the impression I get from other people's reactions to divination is that she's like her, the her track Cleo. record her track record is still well above average for a seer mm. well, good point uh now i feel a little bit better about poor old sybil <laughs> but um so harry and ron they come down from divination there it's nice to get fresh air after one of those classes um and they're getting back to the dormitory they whisper the, or they don't whisper they say the password they're about to go in but hermione comes running up behind them it says harry you have to come. It's it's really important. Um, and pulls these guys back downstairs. The fat lady is a little indignant because they made her open for nothing. Um, but we don't know what's going to happen. Hermione's just kind of come storming up behind them. So I don't know. It had been a while since I had read this. And really, what did you guys think? I thought she was a little too urgent about what what it is that, that she's doing. She just wants to show them Winky. Is that is that it? Uh, no, I think she wants to show them Dobby. Dobby. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think it's legitimate. They didn't. They didn't know Dobby was there. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Yeah. All right. Well, then it's Dobby then <laughs> that she wants <laughs> to take them to see. Um, but she does. They they go down the stairs and um, they actually wind up in, in sort of the lower. They I think they they walk through the great hall. Um, they take a path that Harry just doesn't take too often, but Hufflepuffs probably take it every day. Um, to this painting of this bowl of fruit, and they know. From the common room party, when Fred, uh, or was it George, told uh, I think it was her, oh, told Hermione how to gain access to the kitchens, that there's this bowl of fruit. It's it's a painting, and you have to tickle the pear. And this is like obligatory genius moment for Joe. I think it's the cutest thing mm-hmm. ever. Maybe I've said that twice before already on this episode, but whatever, I don't care. This pear in this bowl of fruit, if you tickle it. It squirms, and then it begins to chuckle, and then it grows into a doorknob, which you can turn to gain access to the kitchens. <laughs> I love it. So this plus, is just – this, This, if nothing else, solidifies Hogwarts as the place where I want to be living. The, the real question is how did the twins figure that out? Oh, they just do that. They just, they just go around <laughs> tickling paintings. <laughs> you know, I bet the Marauder's Map told them. Oh, maybe, yeah. Hmm. Much like the Witch's Hump. Well, how, then uh, how do the Marauders figure that out? They go around it. It's like, you know, there's a, an eventual recursion oh. where somebody is going around tickling all the paintings to see what happens. Well, the Marauders <laughs> said that they got a lot of their information for the map from from past generations. So oh. I, would, mm-hmm. I would assume that it was – yeah, but you're right. Somebody at some point <laughs> went around tickled paintings. It's very true. <laughs> Maybe they saw house elves do it. Maybe that's it's good work you. if you can oh, find maybe. it. I'm just saying. <laughs> you, you you observe. I'm sure houses can get in there without tickling the pair, though. That's just the human entrance. Well, they can um, apparate inside Hogwarts or their own form of apparition. Yeah, their own form of apparition. Right, right, right. right. Um, but uh, they they go into the kitchens, and Harry 
is immediately tackled. Well, not tackled. I mean, Dobby's a little bit smaller than him. By Dobby! Dobby! Dobby the house elf. Hello, Mr. Potter. Um, really, really excited to see Harry. So, it's it's a reunion of friends, everybody. Harry! I would be psyched. It's true. And we... So the kitchens are full of house elves and these tables, they, they've they got these tables, the, all the walls are lined with cookware and the tables uh, span this kitchen area almost are identical to the ones directly above them, which is in the Great Hall where everybody feasts. So Harry kind of assumes in the way that once you've been around magic for four years, you can kind of get a better insight into how things are happening. Um, he says, well, basically that the food is prepared on these tables, then it just is levitated up or is somehow, you know, just transferred almost directly above where it is resting. Um, so he kind of has that insight into it. The house elves do have uniforms, um, but I, I think they're all still pretty scantily dressed. I think it's like little a, togas, uh, yeah, a togas, yeah. yeah. Um, they have the Hogwarts crest on them, but they necessarily have to be because otherwise they have been freed, which only Dobby is cool with. So is it like you either have to have a choice of like keeping your house elf naked or giving it like – or not even giving it but letting it pick a rag or something for it to, in order to, to still be bound by the master-servant relationship? Yeah, I think if you – it seems to me that if you – as long as it is not an article that is meant to be thought of as clothing, it's okay. So, you know, Dumbledore so can hand them that's why they're wearing – obscure stuff all the time yeah he could he could hand them he could hand them old towels with the hogwarts crest or something and they can you know fashion it into a toga but he could not actually create something that was fitted to house elves because then that would be clothing because i'm trying to think of uh what uh what's hepzibah smith's um house elf is it hokey 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 i'm wondering what hokey is is wearing i have to read that chapter again uh in book six of course but uh i i think that like You'd think that the more important families would have a more um, uppity-looking, upper-class-looking house elf. Like, I'm thinking of, like, a butler with a tie, but if you give them, you know, clothing, of course, they're free. So that's very interesting analysis there, I think, for, on your part. There's also um, there's also the possibility with the, with the you know, the higher-end families, if the Malfoys are any indication, that it would – it's also potentially a um, – you know, a symbol of status for for how shabby you can keep your house elf looking, in a mm-hmm. sense. You know, to to create to create more of a separation between yourself and your servant, maybe. Ho- Hokey, for the record, is wearing a linen sheet as a toga. Oh my gosh! So Me really, too, nobody dresses nobody dresses their house elves. This is the thing. It's a you Greek can't. system. They all wear togas all over the place. <laughs> it's a Greek system. I, well, I didn't realize that that was why they were always wearing things that I don't even know what it is, like a tea cozy. I've never used a tea cozy in my life, I'm sure. It's a doily. I don't – okay, doily, that kind of sounds a little Wait, better. what did you say? D- doily. Again, man. <laughs> is that a Boston thing? Doily. You said, you said dooley the first yeah, time. Yeah, you said dooley. Dooley. I guess that's I'm just something that – that place where we say that. Well, Thank no, you, that's Michael just a place where a bunch it? of people's last name is dooley. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> hey, dooley. But uh, – well, anyway, I think that's really interesting, and um, you know there are a bunch of other house elves, Dobby included. Dobby has a tale to tell. Apparently, he's only just arrived at Hogwarts maybe a week or two ago, and the reason is he's been searching. He says the entire country. He says he spent two years going around the country looking for a job, and we know that this is 1994 
from the extended uh, calendar of events. So the economy should be a little bit better in the books than what it is. But the issue is that Dobby wants paying. Um, and this is apparently such an issue of contention that there's not even this jolly old fellow running like a boarding house or something in, in, in Kirk that says, I'll pay you just so that you work for me. Nobody wants him. Nobody wants Dobby. Yeah, nobody wants Dobby because he wants paying. And this is something that we're led to believe was an issue for two years for Dobby. Poor Dobby. I mean, he's all cheers about it. Um, and, you know, it's a little bit funny because we find out that when he does find payment at Hogwarts, it's for a tenth of what he was offered. <laughs> um, and so here's the situation. Dobby found Dumbledore. Actually, Dobby found Winky. And then they were looking for a place together, and Dobby said, well, why not Hogwarts? We know they have house elves, that sort of thing. So Dobby, and this is one of this, the conversations that I would love for Joe to write out in, like, charity. You know, she did, like, the motorcycle piece with Sirius Black mm. and them. Um, I would love to see Dobby coming here because we hear these snippets from Dobby's mouth as he's telling Harry Potter um, that basically he showed up and he asked to work at Hogwarts. And Dumbledore offered him, here's what the initial pay was offering. First of all, it's rude to ask people what they get made, like what they made. I learned this as a child. You're not supposed to pe ask people what they get paid. But apparently the, the trio doesn't have any problem doing that. Um, it turns out that Dumbledore was going to pay Dobby 10 galleons a week, 10 galleons a week, and offer him weekends off. Dobby, of course, this was far above Dobby's expectations. Dobby settled for one galleon a week and one night off, or one day off a, a month. Um, so it's quite a bit less, but it's still so much more that Dobby is seen as reckless and it, it, basically as it's an interesting thing is happening when the trio is here because these house elves are offering them all food and treats and stuff. But apart from the actual physical transaction that is required to give pe you know, them these treats, they're keeping their distance from Dobby and they're, they're giving him these, these bad looks because he's talking about the story of accepting payment and they just can't fathom it. And I wanted to say I did the conversion, and that's about 50 pounds, uh, 50, you know, British pounds, about $100. One galleon or 10? 10. Oh, 10. Okay. Is that factored in for inflation from 1994 to now? Uh, no, that is just, um, you know, the conversion on the lexicon. Yeah. Well, it's it's funny because Dumbledore is totally willing to pay Dobby when he asks for it, you know? That's because Dumbledore is badass. Well, it's just he knows what it's – he doesn't – he's badass. That would mean that he is the first person, the first employer in Britain or the, 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 the first man probably ever, let's face it. He's got a lot of firsts going for him to actually pay a house of for the, their service. Most um, likely probably the first, yeah. And he just doesn't care about it. He's, I mean he cares. He's just like I want to – this is the right path. You know, he's kind of a trendsetter. He's a, he's, he's starting this, this revolution and, you know, Hermione wishes she had done it. It's true. But then again, you know, it's, it's unlikely that it's unlikely there's going to have to be too much of a revolution because Dobby's the only one who wants this. And even as, as you pointed out, there's, there's a certain point where it terrifies him, the, the level of, you know, the, the idea of being too much of a revolution. He's like, <laughs> no, don't. Don't pay me that much. I'll just, <laughs> don't don't do that. Um, that's you know he's he's still got that aspect of house elfing inside him. He's he's just a little 
he's a little more of a rebel than the other house elves are but even he there's there's still the fact that he's a house elf and he he can't he can't go that far he can't act like he's a person or anything there's an upper limit yeah yeah that's a good point um so with dobby is winky and she is just a mess you know i i try and read this without being like oh brother or oh my god and they have some dialogue together and it is it is important but winky at this point in her fragile little life is is just very upset that she was let go by mr crouch um and really what we learn what the trio learns is that um the the house elves are still not really able to after being dismissed that they're still not able to really speak down against their master winky simply won't but actually in the case of dobby he tries he says oh yeah i can tell you now that the malfoys were 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 bad wizards yeah i can tell you that and then he has to go and hit his head on the desk even if, even though he thought he was going to be safe he still can't do it. So it really just in this fit of rage and Winky is sobbing on the floor. Her, her head is hitting the stones. It's, it's ridiculous, but we really learn just how enslaved these house elves are. Um, it's a very interesting setting for it to be taking place as they prepare, you know, tomorrow's breakfast or whatever. Um, but there really just are so many layers to this house elf problem, uh, right. as shown in this scene. And I, I would say, I would say that Dobby, you know, punishing himself, that's more, I don't think that's the, an enchantment that's, that remains on him. I think he's, he just doesn't, he's not psychologically capable of thinking that he doesn't have to do that if he, if he is a bad elf. Was it ever an enchantment? But probably not. That's probably, that's really probably a good point. It was probably um, just, that's the way house elves are, yeah, conditioned. Hmm. So, so like, he hasn't really broken that condition, um, and that you know that's that's a real thing. Not to bring it down or anything, but that is a real thing that that happens to people. You know, if mm-hmm. you if you condition them like that, so it it makes it makes sense that that he would have trouble only two years later and not having that many opportunities or anyone kind of guiding him out of it, deprogramming him, so to speak. That he would he would still be stuck doing that. And like you say, it's a very interesting and and kind of surprising examination of of this kind of this ugly side of the wizarding world that that took to come in this context well it's trauma psychology and also classism i mean it's downton abbey is what it is yeah (laughs) i still have to see that show downton Um, elfie (laughs) downton dobby downton Downton dobby we're doing it and 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 by the way i also want to point out that i i thought it was funny in the scene like you said they're they're preparing the breakfast i think it's funny that even in the wizarding world there is an element of like illusion and magic trick that goes on like it's not like the food actually just appears there are people behind the curtain working tirelessly (laughs) to get it there like a disney cruise or something yeah are are the house elves like the mini chlorians of the harry potter world (laughs) yeah well they're just they're the stage hands like there's the ma- Dumbledore is the magician. He goes up and he goes, "Okay, let's eat." And the the stuff just appears. But he's got all these little assistants behind the scenes, like waiting to to Under pull the door. levers and and you know yank on the trap door and stuff to make him look really good. Even That's cute. He, even though he really is a wizard and really is a magician, he, there's a magic trick going on too. And this reinforces the fact that Dumbledore is the damn puppet master of the world. There it is. Well, I think the onus is on the house elves because if all they have to do is go up to them and ask for payment and they'll get more payment than their little minds could could possibly imagine, like they just got to go do that, you know? 
Like, I think Dumbledore would employ every one of his house elves if they asked. Of course he would. But they would never ask. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of convenient, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like it's like the school governor's working on the budget. And they're like, the potential for house elves to ask for payment budget. Hmm. We can probably nix that. That's not going to happen. Yeah. However house elves came into being, however they were created, they were created to be subservient like this. And they like being subservient like this. Dobby is the exception. And that's something that is really something that her Hermione is really the only one who is properly horrified by. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, this whole time Ron is saying this food is great, you know, good service, yeah. <laughs> great service. A one, A one, A plus service. <laughs> a, giving a great review on Yelp. Um, <laughs> Five Michelin stars. <laughs> um, but we do learn from Winky in particular that uh, her mother. And her mother's mother were also house elves for the Crouches. And so it is a family lineage thing. The Crouches must be one of those old families that uh, we read about uh, on family trees and that. They, they um, are. Weren't they named as one of the the pure blood families on Pottermore? I would certainly assume so if they have a house elf because to even get one is, is, is a pretty big deal. I think they were. I think they were yeah. on that list. Yeah. And that's why it would have been a huge deal for – the disgrace of you know th- those kinds of houses are the ones who are most concerned with with honor and disgrace, and that's why it would have been a big deal for Barty Crouch's son to have disgraced the family name. Yeah, it's like the Cameron's dad of all the wizarding families, yeah. <laughs> Ferris Bueller Cameron's dad. Like God, that's just the most bummer of a house to be in. <laughs> just imagine how they treat the help. Man, Winky drove the car through the garage. She's the one that feels disgraced, though. Instead of it being Barty Crouch Jr. It's Winky now, and that this is why she's a wreck. We're witnessing these emotional uh, terrorism, you know, of society onto Winky, and she's really not able to. Just she's not able to cope. She's not able to do it, and she's here in the kitchens, not getting paid, just because she hasn't, you know, opened her mind to it yet. And she's really just very, 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 very upset about being dismissed. And when Hermione says that she saw Crouch recently. Um, you know, her eyes lift up and, and you, you kind of see her be all, be all cool for a moment. But the chapter ends, it gets a little suspicious because, um, Hermione tells Winky that, yes, Crouch is coming to the castle. He's judging the games and Mr. Bagman is with him. And Winky begins to say that Mr. Bagman is a bad man. Make of that what you will. I, I can't. I can't remember why that turns out. I can't either. Is this like the life-changing? I'm sure it's the moment, the pivotal moment in this entire book is why Mr. Bagman is a bad dude. Yeah. Well, that's also – there's also I, – I honestly can't remember. I'm sure it was explained later, but it's also potentially just Winky's perspective. She's mm-hmm. – she, you know, she sees from uh, uh, Crouch talking about him and maybe it's just because he doesn't have the – the proper amount of discretion or he was accused of being a death eater at one point or it could um, just be because it's winky's per- it's winky's personality that we're filtering this through yeah it could be that at one point bagman like said anything kind of unkind and her just like blind uh sort of slavish adherence to the crouch is god sort of paradigm is just yeah. oh he's a bad man he didn't oh, well i know. think i think crouch i think crouch talks about him like he's a bad man um, yeah, I'm just. I was just. I just feel like Winky could have seen him do like some minor social faux pas and like never forgotten <laughs> social it. Social faux pas, because Winky's up on those. Yes, 
Yeah, I was gosh. just reading up on him on the uh, on the wiki while you guys were just talking about it, and basically, that's what it says. It basically says that, um, you know, Ludo was friends with Augustus Rookwood, who was a Death Eater. Nobody really believed him that he didn't know Rookwood was a, a Death Eater. Um, and that's how he ended up getting a job at the ministry is through Rookwood. So I think it's a little bit of all of that. Yeah, Crouch just kind of never trusted him. Right. Crouch tried to put Bagman in Azkaban, um, but it never really happened. And then, you know, he got a job at the ministry. And Gosh. Now they're side by side. Prime candidates for the judging of the Triwizard Tournament. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, prime. Mm. And, of course, the main reason for, for this whole thing on a on a meta level is uh, to be a complete red herring for mm. us as the readers as to who might be behind all of this, uh, the shenanigans going on and the, the plot that's there to uh, to get at Harry. You know, that's a good point. We do get wrapped up in these chapters because there is a lot to discuss here, but we have to think about actual plot elements on the larger scale of this being a book and about it. reasonably you should have other people to suspect. Um, so it's like Joe trying to throw us off the scent. Yeah. yeah, and putting someone besides Karkaroff in the line of fire. That's a very good point. Very good point. Okay, so this week's podcast question of the week was a very good collaborative one here. Um, it's a little deep. It's a little... I think it'll make you think. We'll see. So, of course, it's about the house elves, the namesake of this chapter. And our question to you is, so in this chapter, the trio, as we know, visits the kitchens for the first time. They find Dobby and Winky, who are both still powerfully restricted from being truly free of their former masters, either by conditioning or by magic. Um, Ron, quote-unquote, loves the service in the kitchens, but Hermione, of course, is reacting really strongly to the situation, and we're wondering, is is she right to be at, reacting so strongly to that situation? Um, the rest of the house elves, the Hogwarts elves, rather, don't side with either Winky or Dobby. They just kind of keep to their work. So how are we meant to take the elf situation in the Harry Potter books? Is it more disgraceful that Dobby and Winky are in their situation, you know, being quote-unquote free and either enjoying it or severely disliking it? Or that the house elves are looking down on them for acting out. Um, I know it's kind of a complex question, but um, you'll be able to see it in print on our little website, which will help. We promise. Yeah, um, but I'm interested to hear what you guys think about it. I think uh, the SPEW and the house elves are kind of a hot button for a lot of people, so mm -hmm. I think it should be good. I think it will be good. I want to know what Archduke Severus saying says <laughs> and thinks. Yes, or what was the one we were making the beatbox? Pawns and bow ties. No, the beatbox out of last week. Oh, gosh. I don't remember. I don't remember either. It was a good one, though. But yeah. anyway, so mm -hmm. you know where to answer that question. It's over at alohomora.mugglenet.com. Uh, well, we do want to give a super huge thank you to Teague, Christy, and Michael Scott for joining us. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Hey, thank you guys. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we actually have a project coming up with you guys. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that? Sure. So our podcast, What Are You Doing, comma, movie, question mark, which there's not a lot of podcasts with commas, but eh, <laughs> What Are You or Doing movie is uh, it's a commentary show. We do commentaries for films, and we've done 199 of them, uh, which is talking about movies a lot. And for our 200th 
episode sort of celebration thing, we tend to go all out on milestone events. We've, you know, we did uh, like a marathon of all three extended edition Lord of the Rings at one point. We, we, we did a live show doing Raiders of the Lost Ark at the Nerdist Theater and, and so on and so forth. Uh, for our 200th, we wanted to go all out on it and do a 24 hour straight marathon of all eight Harry Potter films, which, yeah. And, Perhaps. um, oh, it's going to be super, super cool. And, uh, the plan is, what we wanted to do was get the MuggleNet folks in it as much as possible. I mean, Eric held out on us, but Kat was there. And uh, hey, if you guys need any more room, <laughs> if you guys have any room, <laughs> I'd be happy to join you guys. I know it's a little late. You can take the L train all the way to LA. And yeah, um, and what we're gonna do is, uh, as we're doing these commentaries for these movies, and and we we discuss as they relate to the books and all those other things that'll come up along the way. We're also gonna have uh, all the podcast hosts from the whole MuggleNet podcast family reactions in between them talking about how this movie was or how that movie was and their thoughts and all that stuff. And all of this in the service of uh, raising money for Against Malaria Foundation. We don't make a dime off of this. Uh, the whole thing is we're going to think of it like a telethon, like a Jerry Lewis sort of thing, uh, where what we're going to end up doing is having just hoping that people will donate a couple bucks to the Amer- uh, Against Malaria Foundation. And every single donation they throw in, 100% of it goes to buying these nets that they can hang in areas with the uh, carrier mosquitoes of malaria. And, our goal is $10,000 worth of nets. I hope we do better than that, but at least 10000 which will protect people in such a way, like so many people for so many years and so on and so forth, that if we just reach $10,000, those years of life saved would add up to 18000 It would be 18,000 wow. years of life saved. Uh, so we're going to watch Harry Potter. We're going to fight malaria with Harry Potter commentaries, you guys. There, there have been other podcasts that did a, a that have done 24-hour charity events which is like just 24-hour live streams and and they're doing doing it to raise money uh that you know the entire time that they're streaming and we wanted to kind of do that and the thing that was going to fill up about 24 hours was the harry potter series and so that's that's uh what we're doing so the goal is like teague said to raise a minimum of ten thousand dollars but i think especially with the the muggle net community uh joining us and at our backs we can we can far out outpace that goal and also uh it's it's worth noting that it's it's not necessary it's not necessarily just a one-way conversation we will we have a chat room that uh we we pay a lot of attention to and will especially be paying a lot of attention to in the wee morning wee hours of the morning probably when we uh when we need to uh get some suggestions so it's it's something that that we're aware of and that people can come out and not just watch, but participate. Yeah, we will. I mean, we'll have someone dedicated to reading the chat whenever someone says something particularly like, oh, great observation or funny, uh, that kind of stuff. We, we, we totally need people for that kind of thing because these conversations are all going to be really dense and we have to do 24 hours of them and we don't want to miss anything. Yeah. So, so come join us. Yeah. It's on December 7th at noon PST. Uh, which Harbor is, Day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we wanted to sort of change the infamy around a little bit, <laughs> make it something good, y'all. And uh, it's 24 hours, so from noon PST on December 7th to noon PST on Sunday uh, for 24 hours straight. And you can learn more about all that stuff at uh, our website, friendsinyourhead.com slash Potter, uh, where you can also find all 199 episodes of What Are You Doing Movie and our other podcasts as well. It's a whole network of things. And, that uh, is just the best, friendsinyourhead.com. Thank you very much. I'm proud of it. Potter fans are amazing, so I wouldn't be surprised if you very quickly surpass that ten thousand dollars. So I hope so. Yeah. Like seriously, folks listening, going, "Oh, that sounds cool." Please, seriously, yeah. like post about it on Facebook and tell your friends about and, it because and let's keep it'll it going be fun. The whole time. It'll be cool, and we we really want to get a bunch of nets. That'd be so yeah. so cool if we could do that. 
Yeah, our listeners are amazing, so we're going to donate all that just on our own. So, right? A little <laughs> more listeners, right? Right? Yeah. They're all shaking their heads as they're listening. I, maybe as please. a backup plan, we maybe as a backup plan, we could throw book uh, movie for Dumbledore at the uh, malaria. <laughs> Did you put your name in a goblet of fire? Come over here. An angry Michael Gamblin punching Harry Potter in the face worth of malaria nuts. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, there, there it is, kids. There it is. Anyway, but definitely come out and hang out. It'll be really cool. Once again, it's friendsinyourhead.com slash Potter for all that info. And there's a YouTube video with more information that you can share. And, and seriously, please help. It's going to be it's gonna be a lot of fun. the hardest part about these things. And you guys would be our kings if you could help out with that. I'm totally going to come into the chat and heckle you guys because I hate book, uh, movie three. <laughs> Do it. Oh, come at us, bro. Oh, oh, got it. And we'll put a link in the show notes too. So there you go. So yeah, you guys should go listen to us on their show because you just listened to them on our show. And if you <laughs> listening want to be on our show, you know how to do that. Go over to the Be On The Show page on alohomora.mugglenet.com. Of course, you need to have appropriate audio equipment. That includes a set of headphones, kids. Keep that in mind. And in the meantime, subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes because we heart reviews. Thank you. Yes. We heart reviews. There are many ways that you can get in touch with us as our listeners. You can tweet at us. We are on twitter.com slash alohomoramn or facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore. You can write on our Facebook wall, share anything that you like or see, just catch up and see what chapter we're on and all that stuff. You can, of course, call us. We have a hotline. It's 206-GO-ALBUS, which is 206-462-5287. And also, we recently debuted a new service called Audioboo. You'll be able to find the recording button. All you need to do is push it. It's on the main page at alohamore.muggle.com and have your recording device plugged in and you can leave us voice messages another quick and easy way through Audioboo. And of course, our store, we'll just remind you one more time, we have a ton of things, t-shirts, tote bags, sweatshirts, flip-flops, water bottles, travel mugs, and so much more. Um, the Mandrake Liberation Front and the Desk Pig shirts are now available. And actually, the day that this episode releases, which is the Saturday after Black Friday, so um, November the 30th, everything is buy to get free shipping anywhere in the U.S. So be sure to check that out for sure. The code is um, on our Twitter, on our Facebook, on the website. It's all over the place. There's over 80 products to choose from. And then also the ringtones on our website, which are free, completely free. So download those. Um, it's a lot of fun to like dance to our theme song when your phone rings. I'm just saying. I need a desk pig shirt. That sounds awesome. I'm going to check that out for sure. <laughs> yeah, you definitely should. Um, also, we do have an Alohomora uh, app for the phone. Um, you can find the information on that on the website. It is available seemingly worldwide. We always use this phrase, seemingly worldwide, because we've yet to hear from somebody who said, I can't get the app. So if you can't, let us know. But if you can, then you should. It is the Alohomora app. You can find transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings for the episodes, hosts, vlogs, and much more through the app. Ba -ba -da -ba. Well, everybody, we want to thank you for listening. Uh, I am Eric Skull. And I'm Kat Miller. Thanks for listening to episode 59 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore by tickling the pear.
What's your dogness? All I have to do is divide from what I know of you. Are you the sort of man who put the poison into his own goblet or his enemies? Mm-hmm. Now a clever man would put the poison into his own goblet because he would know that only a great fool would drink from what he was given. I am not a great fool, so I could not choose the wine in front of you. But you would have known I'm not a great fool. You would have counted on it. So I'm going to choose the wine in front of me. Awkward.